Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is a true pioneer in insurance and also in insurtech. In fact, Richard Leftley, Executive Vice President of MIC Global, has had about 15 years head start on many of the others in that game. As a trailblazer in microinsurance in the developing world, where premiums per customer can often be measured in single digits, Richard learned right away that without a digital-first approach, you're going to get swamped by the expense ratio, and you won't have a viable product. As technology and robust data sources have advanced, so the microinsurance opportunity is finally coming into its own. But what's particularly exciting is that it turns out the hard operational lessons learned from that tech-first, very high-volume, low-individual-premium-microinsurance experience are transferable to the high-growth, emerging, embedded insurance applications in the gig economies of today's most developed countries. And now that MIC Global has been given in-principle approval for a syndicate in a box at Lloyd's, it seems poised to benefit from strong growth in both of these incredibly different worlds. Richard is passionate and eloquent, and really knows his business inside and out. There's a lot you can learn from him, and I highly recommend a listen today. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. So Richard, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you for having me, great to be here. Well, tell us all about MIC Global. How did it start and what's your company mission? Sure. So MIC Global can trace its roots back to 2002, so nearly 20 years ago, or just over 20 years now. And originally, it was a creation to try and work out why it was that people in emerging markets simply didn't buy insurance. So about 1% of the population in 2002 of emerging markets purchased insurance. And if you think about the risk they face every single day, in literally every aspect of their life, it just didn't seem sensible that they shouldn't buy these products. So for us, it was... It was really a combination of believing that there was a huge market opportunity to sell insurance into those people that weren't served, but also a great opportunity to provide that safety net to societies, to villages, communities. 
when disaster strikes, they inevitably fall back into poverty. And so without an active kind of safety net that can come through insurance, people were just getting poorer and poorer. And of course, this was the time of the HIV pandemic. And it was a real issue for them. I remember sitting under a tree with right at the outset with a lady in rural Zambia. And she was trying to explain to me how she had come to live here in the village. And it kind of transpired that She'd been middle class, you know, she'd been living in the capital as a school teacher, husband's a security guard, they lived in a nice apartment by Zambian standards, and here she was in the village with virtually nothing. And she said, look, you know, my life is like that game of, of snakes and ladders, where I try to work my way out and become, you know, wealthy, provide for my kids, and then disaster strikes. And of course, husband had got sick and they'd use all their money to, to provide him treatment and then with a decent funeral. And here they were back in the village with nothing. And it just, that light bulb went off in my head that said, this is what we use insurance for. You know, insurance is this fantastic mechanism of providing a safety net to people and to societies. And we need to find a way to do that. And so the MI is really the microinsurance, which was very much of that period of the noughties, was very much in vogue, in fact. Yeah. Of course, you've come onto the radar now because you've got a syndicate in the box at Lloyd's, pre-approved, or is it is it going to start underwriting? Is it fully approved? It's approved in principle, in principle. Uh, with a view that it could launch no sooner than the 1st of April. So. so tell us about that part of the story about, you know, that was quite a long time ago, 20 years ago, microinsurance. And now, should we continue to think of you as a microinsurance company, i.e. thinking about developing nations and implanting insurance where there is no insurance and helping those people prosper and give them that safety net? Or should we think of you in a wider sense as well? Because certainly in some of the press material around now with this, in principle, approval from Lloyd's, it seems to me that you have a wider mission than that. Oh, absolutely. So for us, we started off in the emerging markets. That's the MI piece, the microinsurance piece. But interestingly for us, microinsurance is not just about low-income families anymore. It's also, we've learned that in order to serve low-income families in Africa and Asia, you need to have these very simple products, these very frictionless digital customer journeys, so fantastic tech that underpins that, and you need to pay claims quickly. But we were very then surprised to kind of go to New York and sell to gig workers or to people who are working you know, alongside platform businesses. And what we discovered was, guess what? They need simple products, frictionless customer journey, and they want their claims to be paid quickly. And so a couple of years ago, we learned that actually Microinsurance wasn't just about Africa. It was actually the micro component of it also meant short distance or short duration in the US or in the EU or the UK. And in fact, the same skills that we'd learned out there in Africa 20 years ago were actually the same skills that we now needed in order to serve these gig workers, these SMEs and these people that are associated with these platform businesses. And just to get some more basic information about MIC Global, what sort of size should we think of you as and sort of what sort of GWP you expect to be writing in 2022, for example? Sure. So first off, you need to understand that we started off as an insure tech. So when we first started doing this, we were an insure tech. And the reason for that was because it was the quickest, cheapest way of getting into the market and finding out whether or not we could actually overcome some of the challenges. Because providing insurance to low-income people in Africa is challenging, you know. Providing insurance digitally to gig workers in New York is challenging. And so we wanted to work out whether we could do that as an insure tech. That's why we started off in that way. And when we got, I mean, we got out to tens of millions of customers through the various kind of businesses, the telcos, the ride hailing platforms, the food delivery companies that we were working with. And we realized that we needed to become an insurance company, right? So we needed to transition, make that transition from being the insured tech to being an insurance company. And we did that a couple of years ago by setting ourselves up in Anguilla. Reason being is because that was one of the quickest ways of getting to market and working out whether that transition made kind of made sense for the market. And very quickly, we learned that actually it did. I mean, in our first year, we wrote 
$12 million of GWP, which we were really happy with as an unrated entity in Anguilla, where the larger brokers can't work with you because you haven't met their security requirements. Um, And we were just going out there and finding this business. But what it showed us was that there was a huge opportunity and that if we could get an A rating, that the big brokers would work with us. And there was huge demand for an innovative insurer who could not only underwrite innovatively uh, innovative products, but also bring alongside that the technology to underpin those products. And that was the message we were hearing consistently. So what we decided to do was, okay, how do we as quickly as possible become an A-rated reinsurer? And one of the paths for that was in conjunction with Lloyd's through their syndicate in a box process. And you know, I think it's public knowledge that over the first three years, you know, the idea is that you go from a kind of standing start to in the region of 100 million pounds or thereabouts or north of that. And so absolutely that kind of reflects you know, our belief of what we can do as well. So you've got all the room you need to grow now. And obviously, no one on any security committee is particularly worried about Lloyd's these days. No, no. And I think, yes, you know, it really helps us that we can now work with all the brokers. We still work directly with a number of the platform businesses come directly to us. But we also work with the brokers and with the local insurance companies. And what we have found as well is that, of course, one of the kind of great things about Lloyd's is that you can then form coalitions between syndicates where, for example, maybe there are syndicates that are already working with some of the platform businesses in the US, in the UK, in the EU. But where additional products that need the technology that we can bring to the table could be enabled if we were involved in the consortium. So, you know, we don't have to wrestle that platform business away from the existing syndicate. We can actually join forces with that existing syndicate and create a new product line. It's interesting what you said about being an insurtech. So would you say you were an insurtech in 2002? Interesting question, because of course, you know, 2002, that was three years before Facebook, right? We were still using dial-up broadband. So I believe we were, yes. I mean, based on what is now called an insurtech, that's absolutely where we were. Because we were selling policies that cost three cents to a dollar. So how on earth, you know, you can't possibly do that without technology. Yeah, because I presume otherwise your expense ratio is 98% and then the value of the product is zero. Exactly. I mean, you spent all of the money just on the distribution cost. So we were forced into it right from day one. You had to go digital. And, um, you know, we didn't really have to kind of go down market or find a way to use technology. Without it, we didn't have a business. You said before about starting your own carrier and saying that you felt you needed to have your own carrier. Why did you need to? I mean, obviously, as an insurtech, we were working with kind of local insurance companies, as well as some of the bigger kind of multinational insurance companies. And we found that, I don't think it's a secret, I think insurance is really conservative. There's a kind of a move towards underwriting products that are more catastrophic in nature rather than more attritional in nature, which is the products that, that the market actually want. It's taking a long time to get products approved through the kind of the various bureaucracy of the insurance around that certainly all through the noughties it was very much flavor of the month microinsurance was a hot topic before insurtech took it over probably and also all those companies were making a big play for csr corporate social responsibility as we would have described it then and now which is morphing into esg of today so i'm surprised that someone didn't give you you know to say look we really want to work with you across the board we've got global licenses let's just do this together? Well, we did. We, we nearly ended up going into one of the big global insurance companies and at the last minute realized that actually they really wanted to run it as a consultancy. And I think that's the model that has emerged. The big global insurance companies have ended up with some experts on their team. And whenever someone says microinsurance, they send those individuals out to the country and they kind of have some level of expertise around kind of the products or the customer journeys, which then they can kind of share with the local underwriting team. But ultimately, the local underwriting team still has to kind of then comply with all of the requirements of getting a product approved internally. And we know that that means that the size of the deal has to be $10 million in the first year. 
We know that they're going to want a lot of data, which often doesn't exist. They're going to want historical kind of lost records, which don't exist. So there's so many barriers to actually getting these things off the ground in these big companies. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think where they ended up was a lot of the big companies ended up seeing this as a CSR thing, right? This is more like an NGO activity, something that we can put in the balance sheet. We can talk about how we're saving the world and make ourselves feel good about it. But actually, if you look at it, insurance companies have been around for decades. And yet 97% of the world's population in emerging markets still don't have insurance. So we've been talking about it, but actually not a lot of action. It's very interesting you say about that, that we want to make it really clear. There was that point, certainly, where I, covering that microinsurance firm, and I could feel that it was very much seen as a sort of CSR thing, something nice we can put on our annual report, look very good, you know, after the chairman's letter. But actually, it wasn't anything that they saw as a, a real business opportunity. Something they just said, well, yeah, we'll lose a bit of money on this. This will run 120, but anyway, it's only 10 million or whatever. It looks good, and it's part of, you know, it's making the world a better place. But actually, of course... That's not sustainable, is it? And so no. I want to discuss with you that, just to be clear, that you are out to make a profit for MIC. Global. Oh, absolutely. No, be in no doubt, right? I mean, we see this as a very profitable business, actually. I mean, our loss ratio is often way below what we see in Lloyd's. In fact, one of the biggest challenges, I think, was they really kind of were struggling with understanding how the loss ratio historically was so low on our business. Because these products, you know, when you sell them into these markets, they are very high volume, very low ticket, very predictable kind of loss ratios, unlike kind of catastrophic business where you can either yeah. get a huge loss or not. So for us, absolutely, look, make no doubt about it. This is a profitable business. We've been running it as a profitable business. We intend to run it as a profitable business in the future. But I do agree with you. I think that in the early days, there was the kind of like the NGO type mindset. And interestingly, most of that's fallen by the wayside because, of course, once the money ran out from donors... So did the programs. Because it's not sustainable, is it's it? It's not sustainable, right. Yeah. There's no business model. So You don't have to make spectacular returns, but you have to make returns on capital that then you can reinvest into the business. Otherwise, you can't grow the business. There's no point in growing a loss-making business. You just grow your losses. No, absolutely. So for us, we're very clear. This is a profitable business. We're going into Lloyd's, which, as most people know, isn't renowned for having a, a low cost base, is it? And Unless that... it doesn't really tolerate people losing money for no, very long it, periods of time. Exactly. It doesn't like people losing money. And so, of course, we're going in with our eyes wide open, but we're going in because we believe that we can actually not only match the best, we can exceed it. We think that microinsurance is actually possibly going to be one of the better kind of lines of business in Lloyd's in the future. Of that, I'm sure. We're certainly accretive, isn't it? So you're not going to be competing with everybody else. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's new business, it's accretive, and it's very much tech-driven. So it fits totally within what Lloyd's wants to do. Just on that, you know, this interesting that the developing world and the Western world with the gig economy... Which do you think of those strands of the business are going to have the greater potential? I think the first point to make is that the price points are quite different. Okay, So if you measured the business based upon number of policies that you sold, clearly we sell more policies in emerging markets. But if you added up the premium, the gross written premium from those policies and compared it to, say, business that we do in the US, then, of course, that's not a fair comparison, right? Someone in Africa might be paying three cents. Someone in the US might be paying three dollars because they want to hire some insured because they can afford it. And that's then relevant to them. Yep. But, you know, I think what's really interesting to us is the nature of the products which people in the US, which were able to sell through these platforms, you know, so working with a lot of these IoT device companies, so companies like uh, video doorbell kind of companies, someone comes to your doorbell, rings the doorbell, and you say, leave the parcel on the doorstep, and then the parcel's insured for a fixed amount of money in case it gets stolen. Or someone wants to take a yoga class or teach a yoga class. They need professional indemnity insurance in order to hire the gym, but they don't want to pay for a year's worth of professional indemnity insurance. They just need 
60 minutes or 90 minutes. And those kind of products are incredibly popular to be sold through platforms. And then they're embedded, I suppose. That's another one of the big buzzwords of today, isn't it? Embedded insurance. So they're embedded and they're almost, they're sold to people by another business. Yeah, perhaps, absolutely. I don't know, by the people who run the hall, who then let it out oh, to well, younger people and say, by the way, if you want professional indemnity insurance, which we're going to require you to have, we've got it solved here for $2. Even one, one better, you put it into the platform, right? So most people now book yoga classes on a platform. They go to their fitness app and that connects the teachers with the people that want to do it, with the location, and that's where you embed it. I mean, embedded is, yes, you're right, it's a buzzword. And when it came on the scene, I was fascinated by it. I thought, this is great, a new way of doing insurance. And I looked at it and thought, oh no, this is what we've been doing. (laughs) You know, we've been embedding our products into B2B partnerships. And we started off with these microfinance banks. We then went to the telcos. We then went to the ride hailing. We used to just call this affinity, didn't we, before? Well, yes, I think so. So I, I think it is, I mean, there are some nuances around it, around how people sign up and pay for which I think are kind of unique, but that's because the tech has moved on and people's willingness to engage with kind of third-party platforms has moved on, which has opened up those opportunities. Yeah, it's an interesting model. So I presume this is sort of B to B to C, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. As a scrub, so business to business to consumer. Yep. How does that work? Do you need a broker to find you that business? Yeah, so it is absolutely B2B, and that's always been the way. Originally, of course, it was too expensive to go directly to the consumer. I suppose before, with the classical microinsurance, you'd say you'd go to a local mutual, those sort of places. Yeah, you'd go to a microfinance bank or a mobile phone company. And what you were looking for, what you're always looking for is, in fact, a partner who has a lot of clients, who uses their service frequently, and that there's an embedded way of paying for the insurance. Because the real secret here is how do I collect the second premium, the third premium, the fourth premium, which is where the embedding kind of piece comes in. It's interesting how these businesses then come to us okay so once these businesses that have a large number of customers that use their services frequently and have an embedded kind of payment mechanism when they come to us sometimes it's directly so sometimes it's a mobile phone company or ride hailing organization or an e-commerce site and they might have an issue right they might say I need to differentiate myself in my market. I'm looking for a way to retain my clients for longer or my gig workers my Uber drivers are kind of leaving how do I retain them And so they'll come to us with a problem and say, could you fix this for us? And sometimes they come to us directly. And other times, of course, it comes through the brokers. So we are working very closely with many of the big brokers. And what they're telling us is that they have these clients, affinity partners and platforms, and they're struggling to find willing capacity to underwrite the products. But also they're telling us they're struggling to find the technology. Because, of course, if you're going to sell, for example, you know, food is late, food is free through Uber Eats or Just Eat, you need technology to keep track of those millions of food deliveries that take place in London every 15 minutes, you yeah. know. And it's no good just saying, I'll underwrite that product. I mean, if no one has the technology to keep track of whether Mark's food was late well, or not. moral hazard there is huge. <laughs> yes, arguably. But why not? Why not dynamically price that product, right? So where actually literally you say the loss ratio is going to be between 50% and 70% and then literally you just up and, and down presumably the Presumably between 6 and 8 on a Friday and Saturday night the chance of them missing a slot is bad because yep. they're absolutely full capacity. Aren't they? Uh, absolutely, and also depends on the weather. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's peeing it down, then yeah, <laughs> people, people you find that most of the motorbike riders have just sheltered in a cafe. Or oh, gone home, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They've gone home because they're wet and cold. So, you know, absolutely. And what we're finding is, is that those two things of a willing underwriter who's willing to partner and try and innovate around these new products and also the technology. That's what we mean by this full stack. I think a lot of people get confused by this kind of jargon of full stack. What we mean by that is we're willing to underwrite and we're also willing to come with the technology to enable these products to kind of occur. 
Yeah. And when you say full stack, presumably you've got a relationship with reinsurance in some sense or... In terms of actually reinsuring it out the back door? Yes, I presume that you must buy some reinsurance. No, we don't at the moment, (laughs) interestingly. And the reason for that is because effectively the accumulation on this is... It's not like a typical kind of reinsurance book, right? I suppose, yeah, you don't have accumulation problems, really. Well, the insurance policies are really short. They're 15 minutes to 30 days. And so you can change the pricing. We do actually structure our products in such a way that we do it around exactly dynamic pricing. We look for the loss ratio, and then we build up the data that goes with it, and then we're able to change the pricing because they are quite incredibly short tail, and we know our position quite quickly. You know whether someone's food was late or not. You know, by the end of the day, you know what your outcome was. So. Well, I suppose you're sort of like a day trader, aren't you? You know, the market's closed and I'm either up or I'm down, you know. Yeah, not dissimilar. And definitely that's a critical component here. I mean, I used to be a Lloyd's broker. I used to work at Benfield. So I used to go into those, mar- I understand the Lloyd's market and I've got a huge respect for the place of the Lloyd syndicate. But a lot of those Lloyd syndicates wouldn't know day to day exactly what their position was because they have to wait to the end of the quarter to get the premium border row and the claims border row and work it out. What we want to be doing is day to day, hour to hour, know exactly how many policies have been sold. We want to be involved in helping to collect the premium and we want to be able to support the claim. So that at the end of the day, each and every day, we actually know exactly where we're at. And that's, that's the difference. Because it's pretty a hyper short tail, isn't it? Yeah, very. Yeah, but some of it's long tail. If you are, you're talking about a yoga teacher's liability, that could be a pretty long tail. You know, I could start thinking my back's hurting and then someone said, oh, you know, that was because you did the downward dog too hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what normally happens in those cases, it's around the small attritional losses. So actually it's around, we would cap it and then the person renting out the gym would have some traditional insurance policy that took care of the millions or unlimited liability. Or you're going to be covering their legal costs or something. Yeah. So normally what would happen is that in that instance is that the platform would have to say, look, we're only going to cover losses above $100,000. And that might put people off signing up either as a yoga teacher or as someone to participate in the class. So you're filling in that primary. We're filling in that bottom end. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. As a micro-insurer, you've been on this constant war against the expense ratio killing your product. Mm. So what's the secret of that? Obviously, technology. Yep. But is that really it? But has that investment technology at times put you really in the red for a couple of years? No, I mean, I think it's tech, but also one of the things that comes with tech is less people. People are expensive. That's what's really expensive in the insurance world. And I remember our peak in terms of volume of business. So, you know, we were a slightly different business than we were when we were in InsureTech. At our peak, we were serving kind of 60 odd million customers and we had about 120 staff. You can't possibly hope to do that unless you are running your business entirely digitally. So, you know, literally the people had to fill the gaps where the tech wasn't capable. So you might get a claim and, it, you know, the machine reading isn't perfect. You know, someone's handwriting is not legible. So there are always gaps. You do always need people. You can't go entirely digital. Probably my CEO might disagree with me because I think he's very much of the mindset that wherever possible, we should be as digital as possible. And I think that's the direction of travel that we're all headed in. But we've just been ahead of the curve on it, really. I think that's critical for us. I suppose if I'm looking at a business like yours, if you said the word parametric, it wouldn't surprise me. Are you into parametric insurance as a way of cutting down these costs and applying everything? Oh, absolutely. We did our first parametric product in 2004 with smallhold farmers in Malawi. If the rains didn't come, then you got your loan paid off or you got more fertilizer or seeds so that you could plant again. We were at the forefront of those kind of products that were parametric. But, you know, interestingly, more recently, it's been around if your taxi's late or your food is late and then you don't even have to make a claim or your flight is late you know you just get a text message saying sorry mark food's late we've recredited your credit card with 10 pounds for your meal tonight or sorry your flight's late when you land we've given you 50 euros or whatever it is executive lounge exactly and so that's what parametric now means to us yes with this the whole idea of embedded insurance 
sometimes you see that perhaps the way you sell the idea of that embedded insurance to a business selling a service to say, hey, you can embed the insurance and that will actually make people buy more of your product. Yes. I totally get that. But does that mean that you're in the danger of some of these products being slightly kind of dazzling, but not very valuable add-ons? The sort of like the plastic toy that falls out of the cereal packet. I mean, yeah, I think you're dancing around the world, which is missold, right? <laughs> well, I'd say, is there a danger there? Yeah, You've got to be no, wary look, of that. I, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's something we take very, very seriously. You know, I mean, things like things that I hate, like mobile phone insurance, that I yeah. can see it's got no value. No, no. So when we. But so, people buy in droves. Oh, absolutely. So when we first started working with mobile phone companies, they were coming to us saying, look, in Africa, everyone's got two to three SIM cards, but it's a prepaid market, pay as you go. People were topping up $5 on average a month, but they were splitting that across two or three different mobile networks. And we were the pioneer in 2009 of using insurance to change consumer behavior. So if you stay with me as a network and you top up more airtime, you buy more so you can make more phone calls, you'll get more free insurance. And this was great. It worked. You know, people were changing their behavior. And the reason they were was because I think it's true. No one wakes up wanting to buy insurance, but they do wake up worrying about the risks they face. And if you're in Africa, you really wake up worrying about what happens if my kids get sick or my husband dies. And so they were really changing their behavior in order to buy more airtime from Vodafone versus, say, Airtel. But what became very clear, the loss ratio on those products was incredibly low. It was about a third of what we imagined it should be. So we were seeing a massive underreporting of claims. So we actually started running radio ads on community radio stations saying, hey, if you're a customer of this mobile phone company and you've been to hospital, please get in touch. And then we would see a spike in claims. But we actually stopped doing those products for exactly that reason, which was they were embedded. They were so embedded that people didn't actually know they had them. And as a result, there really wasn't any customer value, right? We weren't really doing anything for these communities. And that's, you asked at the beginning, what's our mission? Our mission is to kind of bring valuable insurance products to the unserved, to people that don't have insurance. It's not about kind of pretending they don't have insurance and then not paying their claims, right? That's not what we're about. So when we see that thing, you know, when we see that happening, yeah, we're very much against that. Uh, that's really, really good to hear. I'm really glad you say that. That's fantastic. Obviously, you're very techy. You've got tech embedded into everything. How far do you think tech is going to go uh, <laughs> in terms of automating everything? Well, I'm probably, I mean, I'm a bit old school in our company. I'm probably the least technological. So people listening to this from my company might well be giggling to themselves. Well, say, oh, that's just <laughs> no, Yeah, exactly. I'm probably famous internally for kind of always asking the really awkward question, which is, is this a solution looking for a problem? So and I think there are technologies out there, which are really, they are a solution that are looking for a problem in insurance. And there are ways of doing it the old way. Like things like blockchain, for example. Well, I wasn't going to say that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yes, perhaps. And I think blockchain could be fantastic, but it hasn't really found its kind of place yet in terms of what it could do better than the alternatives, you know, the current alternatives. So I think Tech is great, but one of the things that's true about our customer base is that now it's very diverse. It's from the most technically enabled, you know, gig workers in New York, to ladies in rural Africa who still have a grey screen phone. And we therefore have to fit what we're doing into that entire ecosystem. From the gig worker who works at Peloton and has the latest Apple phone, it has to work across that spectrum. And that's a challenge for us. So you say that there's always going to be humans somewhere lurking? Humans, yes. And what's amazing is I think the biggest break on the role of technology is humans. You know, if you get rid of humans, then we could do all of this from a technology standpoint. But humans aren't willing to do everything using tech. They still want to do things sometimes the old way. That's why we still have cash and coin. The last couple of questions would be around yourselves as a business. Obviously, you're entrepreneurial, clearly. You're setting up 
insurance where there wasn't insurance before, set you up your own carrier, and now got it into Lloyd's. Do you have some sort of exit plan? Do you go, right, when we've hit 200 million GWP, I'm going to retire and buy a yacht? <laughs> Personally, no. It wouldn't be my choice um, as such. I mean, you know, Harry, Jamie, who are also my co-founders with me, I know that they're very committed to building the business. We've really just got started in this. You know, this is the start, not the end. Getting into Lloyd's, it was always part of the plan or something like that. And we want to see where this goes. For us, when I look at the size of the market, I mean, if you think, well, there's 4 billion people today who don't have insurance. So, you know, if we could get 10% of those to sign up and have insurance over the course of the next 10 years, that's 400 million people. If they spend half a dollar each a month, we're looking at, what, $2.4 billion worth of GWP. And if they spend a dollar, then that's $5 billion. So that's the kind of... And if you help them become wealthier, obviously, they're going to spend a lot more. And the guys in New York are obviously spending a lot more than 50 cents. So, you know, it's a blended across the whole globe. Look, I mean, this is going to be a huge market. And I don't think we're going to be the last into Lloyd's either. I think there will be other syndicates that come along. And maybe MIC Global helps them come in as well and serves as their entry point. Or you all end up being on each other's consortia, I suppose. Absolutely. Why not? And is your vision to stay, there are some entrepreneurs who want to have their name above the door, effectively, I know your name isn't above the door here, but almost metaphorically, or are you the sort of person who likes to move on to new ideas? I've been here 20 years, so I think that probably answers your question. Although, I this, al- is, this is still a good idea. That- <laughs> this is still a good idea. And I think all of us should reevaluate. I mean, that's not 20 years where I've just not thought, well, you know, should I go and do something completely different? Of course, from time to time, I've thought about that. But actually, I still think this is the best way for us to overcome one of the biggest challenges that faces insurance today, which is providing an insurance safety net to millions and millions of people around the world. And I can't think of a better team or a better setup to be able to achieve that. And of course, it's going to be very high growth, I presume. It's going to carry on being high growth for a very long time. Absolutely. I mean, look, we doubled our size last year and that, you know, as an unrated carrier, we're on track to kind of fourfold that this year. January was way ahead of where we were a year ago. So it's growing very rapidly. And that's before we're even in Lloyd's. So, you know, that, that's great. Well, certainly that was you coming into Lloyd's is a big event. And that's what put you back on my radar and made me think, oh, we should do this podcast. Sure. So I really wish you every success in your growth plans. And I hope everything goes well at Lloyd's. And I hope come back and give us an update sometime in the future. Thank you very much. I'd love to. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.